This morning's lesson comes from John chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look upon the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was empty, they laid Jesus there. Thanks, Heather. Cheery passage from Mother's Day. Have you ever wondered uh, why we die and decay? Ever wondered why? Some would say it's just part of life, you know, that entropy... Uh, is stitched into the way that all things are. But that doesn't actually explain why we're all constantly trying to resist decay and death and why we're disgusted and horrified when we fall prey to either of them and that we think true happiness is actually found in trying to escape them or at least avoiding thinking uh, about them for a bit. So... Uh, We might work hard to push away death and decay or thinking about death and decay with whatever it might be, shopping, surgery, drugs, cosmetics, midlife purchases (laughs) or activities, work, entertainment, family, friends, or just even by thinking about those things, anything, uh, but to have to think about our own death and decay afterwards. But the passage in the Bible uh, today that we just had read, I think, wants us to slow down and think about it. Firstly, about Jesus' death and decay, but then, by extension, our own death and decay. So, let's pause for a little bit right now. Uh, Think about your inevitable death and the decaying of your body afterwards. Uh, Honestly, pause, think about it. How do you feel about it? 
anxious, uncomfortable, angry? Is your life so full of things that you don't have time to think about it? Well, now's the time to do it. I'm going to pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, please help us understand this part of the Bible today. In this, uh, help us trust you more and to live better as we face death and decay. Amen. Uh, in the great film, uh, The Princess Bride, uh, the hero Wesley dies and his mates take his body to a miracle worker who says he's only mostly dead. Uh, he pumps some air into his lungs and says to the corpse, uh, says to Wesley the corpse, what's so important? What you got here that's worth living for? And then he presses his chest and Wesley's corpse mumbles out, true love. Yeah, true love. That's what... Uh... Now, if like this, Jesus was only mostly dead, uh, his corpse might have breathed out something way more profound. I mean, true love is pretty profound, but uh, way more profound. Like the final words that we looked at last week, it is finished. Those were his last words. The it of it is finished, uh, of what is finished, being a deep, deep well of possible things. Uh, from his life, his life is finished, uh, to, to the beginning of the end of God's entire creation project. You know, that's that's finished. Uh, from him fulfilling God's will to ending the wait for the new heavens and the new earth to be ushered in. It's finished. That wait's finished. It started. His final words, uh, as he breathed his last, it is finished. And from here, John wants us to be absolutely convinced uh, that he's dead and decaying. Not just mostly dead, but all dead. Even disgustingly dead. Because he has to be, to be the saviour that we all need. Which is where John is taking us in this passage today. To see, firstly, that Jesus really died. He's really dead. Secondly, that he really decayed. So that finally we might really know he's damned for us. So first up, Jesus is really dead. Uh, We read this in verse 32. Soldiers uh, came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Uh, Crucified people sometimes suffered for days before they died, uh, which was the point. Crucifixion uh, was designed to prolong suffering for as long as possible. But on special occasions, like this one here recorded by John, the suffering might be mercifully, mercifully cut short by breaking the legs of the crucified. This meant that they were no longer able to push themselves up with their legs to breathe so that they more quickly asphyxiate. They die for lack of air. And this is what the Roman soldier went to do to Jesus. But, having broken the legs of those crucified on either side of him, he finds Jesus is already dead. So he doesn't break his legs. Instead, maybe just to be 100% sure that he's really dead, he stabs him with his spear. Uh, No reaction. No reaction? Yep, he's dead. 
But he stabs him so hard it bursts something inside Jesus' body. Blood and water kind of flow out. And John really, really, really wants us to know this. That he is dead. Without broken bones and pierced by a spear. Clearly he knew one of the soldiers who was there. He saw that he was dead. He saw his legs weren't broken. He saw his side pierced with a spear. He saw blood and water flow out. Verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he's testified so that you also may believe. John's not making this up. The man who saw it testifies to it as much as John does so that whoever's reading this might believe it. Uh, This is not just an historical story, an interesting historical story. This is something that the reader, that you and I, need to make a call on. Do we believe it? Do you believe Jesus truly died? That he's all dead? Now, some of us might be thinking, well, why wouldn't we believe that? Uh, Why wouldn't you believe it? Maybe because you can't believe God would let this happen to his son. This... This is kind of the reason that Muslims don't believe it. The Quran clearly states, uh, and for their saying, indeed, we've killed the Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, and they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. Devout Muslims, they hold Jesus dear as a prophet of Allah, and they just cannot and will not accept that God would allow one of his prophets to suffer and die in such a horrific way as crucifixion. Or you might not believe that Jesus died because you don't like what Jesus claims. Uh, Like some atheists who think his death is as mythical as his life. Uh, Indeed, one writer on the American Atheist website that I was reading this week, a guy called Frank Zindler, he dismisses the Gospel of John entirely as a a fraud, as a fiction, just like the rest of the Bible. Uh, And so is Jesus, therefore. He's a fiction as well, just made up. Now, as a published atheist, he doesn't want there to be a God. So all the better for him if Jesus doesn't exist, which most historians, Christians or not, think is ridiculous, by the way. But John's not appealing to what he wants to be true when it comes to Jesus here. He's appealing to what's been seen and testified to. Jesus was truly dead. Bones unbroken, pierced in his side, dead. And this is important because it fulfills scripture and in so doing says a couple of just incredible things about Jesus. First, that he's the Passover lamb and then that he's the God that we've all fatally wounded. As John says there in verse 36, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. You know what that's a reference to? Well, it's from the book of Exodus early in the Bible where way back God saves the Israelites, his ancient people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. Just before he does that, though, he tells them to prepare a Passover meal where each household would prepare a lamb to eat, put the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses so that when the angel of death passes by, he'll see the blood, the blood of the lamb, and he'll pass over that household and not take the firstborn from that household. But a big part of the uh, Passover meal was what to do with the lamb, not just with the blood, but with the rest of the lamb. So we, we read, it must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Don't break any of its bones. Passover lamb was to be eaten inside the house and none of its bones were to be broken. 
And by linking this Passover lamb to Jesus, John wants us to be sure that his dead body, that his dead body with no broken bones is the fulfilment of that Passover lamb. That indeed he is the true Passover lamb who's to be slaughtered with no broken bones and his blood painted on the door frames of our hearts, so to speak, that we might be set free, not from slavery in, uh, to, in Egypt to, to Pharaoh, but set free from slavery to sin and the fear of death, set free into the eternal life of knowing and loving God. But for, for this to happen, for him to be the Passover lamb, Jesus had to be all dead. But he had to be all God too. As John goes on to say in verse 37, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now that's a quote from uh, the book of Zechariah, uh, around 600 years before Jesus. God spoke through the prophet Zechariah about the future, a future time of victory and the cleansing of God's people from the filthy way that they've treated him, where we read God saying this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as he one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. God said a time is coming when he'd pour out his favour on his people. And that favour would look like uh, them being able to see what they've done to him. See that they've actually pierced and stabbed him and that they'll be bitterly sorry for it. So sorry, so distraught, in fact, that they'll grieve over it as if they've lost their only child. Worse, if they have fatally stabbed God himself. But as that happens, as they grieve over killing God, so to speak, Zechariah goes on, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Uh, This must be what John is thinking about is fulfilled with Jesus, right? He's at pains to report the sudden flow, the, the fountain, you might say, of Jesus' blood and water from the side as he's pierced. Like it's a sign of God cleansing the sin and impurity of his people. And not just by man's blood, but by God's blood, As the Apostle Paul says to the church leaders uh, in the book of Acts, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. It's only the blood of God that he sheds on that cross in Jesus that can cleanse every heart of the guilt of treating him like rubbish and suffering the deserved punishment of eternal death for it. The uh, German philosopher, a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche, he famously declared, God is dead. <coughs> and he, uh, he reeled the possibilities for Western uh, culture and morality, that without God, scarily, we're free to do whatever we want. But the cross of Christ more famously declares that God is dead to deal with the eternal consequences of death and hell that we all deserve for thinking that we can do whatever we want. Incredibly, it's only the death of God that can fulfill God's word to save us from eternal death. To save us, Jesus, the Lamb of God, God in the flesh, was really dead. He needed to be dead and he needed to be decaying too. Which brings us to our second point. 
Jesus really decayed. Which sounds off, doesn't it? Almost sacrilegious, even blasphemous. The the world actually certainly thinks so. Uh, On one website I found an article on the 10 most blasphemous heavy metal band names. Names that are meant to to be the most profane and shocking and evil. Names that um, supposedly inspired by Satan. So it was interesting to see the top two and uh, realise that they could have instead been inspired by our passage today. And number two, the band was deicide, which means the act of killing God, which we've seen is what the crucifixion of Jesus was. And number one, number one was the band called Rotting Christ, which is a shocking name. It evokes a disturbing mental image, but I think it's actually something I reckon John wants to evoke so that we might believe in Jesus more and honour him more, not less. So from verse 38, we read two guys from the Jewish authorities, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're they're secretly Jesus' disciples. Uh, They take Jesus' body down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. But it's interesting to note how it's not Jesus' body, it's not just Jesus' body that they're handling. Now, verse 38, we're told it's the body of Jesus. They took the body away. Verse 40, it's Jesus' body and it's called an it, a thing. But verse 42, they didn't lay Jesus' body in a tomb, they laid Jesus in a tomb. Now, it's commonly thought that once you're dead and uh, someone is dead and it's just their body, that they're not really there. I asked someone recently what they'd like done at their funeral and they said they didn't care because they wouldn't be there. But... If their body is there during the funeral, I'm not so sure that they wouldn't be there in some significant sense. Like Jesus was really there in the tomb, although his body was dead. As with us all, what happens to his body happens to him. And this is unsettling, I reckon, if we think about what Nicodemus brought with him. Verse 39. We read Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds or... 32 kilos. Taking Jesus' body, the two men wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This is in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Myrrh and aloes, of course, are perfumes or spices. And these were used for two reasons with burials back then. One was to uh, repress the stench and two, to delay the rot that causes the stench. Uh, the human body starts to de- de- decompose around four minutes after death. I didn't know that. <laughs> the bacteria that before death was feeding on the contents of the intestine begins to digest the intens- intestine itself and then the surrounding organs. Uh, also from the moment of death, flies are attracted to dead bodies. They lay eggs around the wounds and body openings. Uh, these eggs hatch and move into the body often within 24 hours. Mm. And it's highly likely likely that this is what's happening to Jesus. That the cells in his body are starting to rupture, his muscles are stiffening, small blisters may be appearing on his skin, maggots incubating in his mouth, nostrils, eyes and wounds. It's hard to think of Jesus this way, isn't it? Rotting. 
feels dirty and wrong, sacrilegious even. It reminds me of Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant some 600 years before Jesus, fulfilled by Jesus, where God says, See, my servant, he will act wisely, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, like one from whom people hide their faces. Just as many were appalled, at Jesus' crucifixion, the absolute degradation of it, disfiguring him so much people couldn't bear to look on. It's like his burial and rotting body pushed that degradation even further so that we can't even bear to look on him in our mind's eye to imagine him rotting. But that's what's going on. And so while Joseph and Nicodemus are careful with Jesus' body, the perfumes and the spices only highlight the ongoing and appalling degradation of Jesus. Who is God? Think about that. That we might reckon with what it really cost God to come in the flesh. To suffer not only death, but decay. For us. So that we might believe and grasp just how incredible his resurrection from this death and this decay is and in so doing be saved from not only eternal decay, uh, death, but from eternal decay. There's a, uh, an old film called uh, Death Becomes Her, uh, where the two main characters drink a potion that gives them eternal life, but it doesn't stop their bodies breaking and uh, decaying. And so the longer they live, the more broken and disfigured and disgusting they end up, which is... The exact opposite promised to all those who believe in Jesus, the Lamb of God, God himself who died and decayed for them so that they might be saved to eternal life from eternal death and decay and damnation, which brings us to our final point. Jesus is damned for us, which seems to be what bookends this whole passage uh, with the mention of the day of preparation in verse uh, 42, and right at the beginning in verse 31, with the uh, Jewish leaders not wanting the bodies left on the crosses the next day during the Sabbath. But why not? Why not just leave Jesus on the cross over the weekend? It was common practice for Rome uh, to leave the crucified, to die and to rot on their cross. Uh, It took special circumstances to break their legs so they'd be so they die quicker to take them down. Is it, is it because of it's a special Sabbath, verse 31 again, uh, that he was taken down? It, it must have been something to do with God's law then, that the Jewish leaders requested this. God's law given through Moses. I mean, the Jewish leaders, they were pretty fussy about God's law, straining out a gnat and all that. And God's law said that anyone who claimed to be God deserves to die. It's, it's a capital offence. But God's law also said that someone who's been executed for breaking God's law and exposed on a pole mustn't stay on it overnight. We read this in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. If someone guilty of a capital offence is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day. Because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, maybe not Joseph and Nicodemus, but certainly the other Jewish leaders thought Jesus was under a curse. 
having committed the capital offence of blasphemy, of claiming to be God, and being exposed on a pole come cross, he's under God's curse. He's damned. And to leave him unburied would mean desecrating the promised land God gave them. It would mean damning themselves to lose what God's given them. The irony is that Jesus is the greatest gift God's given them, precisely as he suffers under God's curse. That's why he dies and decays. But it's not for any crime he committed. It's for the capital crime that we've all committed, that they all committed and we've all committed, rejecting God in one way or another, as the Apostle Paul can write. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. The curse of the law is death and decay and Christ suffers that in our place. He becomes a curse for us as he dies hung on a pole and buried to to decay the same day. It's that Jesus really died to really decay that means he really, he's really damned in our place to really save us from eternal death and decay and damnation. As such, those of us who are believing in Jesus, we can approach our own death and decay, not with fear or disgust or horror, not with frantic efforts to distract ourselves, to avoid thinking about it, but with Calm, knowing that death and decay don't have the final word, that our death and degrading decay is no longer punishment for our sin, that we're no longer damned. We don't die and decay because we're sinners. We die because we haven't yet received our promised inheritance of eternal life. And so we don't die so much as fall asleep. That's how the Bible talks about it for those who are trusting in Jesus. Our bodies may rot, as did Christ's, but we're not dead, in the sense of bound to the realm of death, bound in a place where death will reign eternally. We're asleep in Christ, who as the Lamb of God and God himself suffered the damnation of death and decay for us so that we might live for Christ while alive and sleep in Christ when we're dead, to one day wake in a new body that'll never suffer or die or decay for all eternity with our Lord and Saviour Jesus. I'm going to pray that we might know that and take comfort in that. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you were prepared to let your son suffer such degradation in his death and in his decay to suffer it in our place such that we might have hope in the face of our own death and decay a hope that eclipses any horror or any frenetic attempt to distract ourselves or avoid having to think about it with the things of this world but know with confidence that in Christ although we die we will live and although our bodies will decay we will be asleep only in Christ to one day awake 
into a new resurrected life with our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Please strengthen us and comfort us with the reality and truth of this as we approach our own death and consider our own decay. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.